From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 270, for the week of March 27, 2014. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your host Tom Bell, and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata Willie, and Michael Bowling. In this segment, Michael continues his lead up to Disneyland's 60th anniversary. We're going back to the beginning, Michael? Going back to the beginning of an idea when Walt first started thinking about Disneyland. Very cool. So thank you, Tom. Uh-huh. When asked about Disneyland, Walt Disney said, Disneyland really began when my two daughters were very young. Saturday was always Daddy's Day, and I would take them to the merry-go-round and sit on a bench eating peanuts whilst they rode. And sitting there alone, I felt that there should be something built, some kind of family park where parents and children could have fun together. Now, Walt's oldest daughter, Diane, believed her father's idea for a family park went much farther back. In 1911, Walt's father, Elias Disney, moved the family from Marceline, Missouri to Kansas City. Nine-year-old Walt and his youngest sister, Ruth, would frequently visit Electric Park, which was just 15 blocks from the Disney home. Electric Park was modeled after the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, with distinctive architecture outlined by popcorn lights. A train ran around the perimeter, and the park rides were integrated into the well-designed and maintained landscape. Sounds familiar. It does, and fireworks even lit the sky every evening before the park closed. Walt continued to visit Electric Park as a young man when he was running his animation venture, the Laughagram Studios. Walt Mm. told one of his employees, Rudy Ising, one of these days I'm going to build an amusement park and it's going to be clean. The carnival's fairs and amusement parks at that time were usually dirty, disorganized, and poorly run. A few years later, when Walt and his brother Roy moved to California and opened the Disney Studios on Hyperion Avenue in Hollywood, fans of their star, Mickey Mouse, constantly wrote or showed up to the studio asking to meet Mickey. Walt went so far as to build a garage for Mickey Mouse's car on the studio lot. Walt considered a studio tour, but believed visitors would not be entertained by simply watching the animation process. When Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs premiered in 1937, a display with the dwarfs' cottage was placed in front of the Carthay Circle Theater. During the premiere festivities, Walt turned to animator Wilford Jackson and said he wanted to build an amusement park, scaled to children just like the display. Snow White was a financial success, and Walt and Roy used $3 million of the profits to build the -the state-of-the-art Disney studio in Burbank. During the planning of the studio, Walt saw a triangular section of land south of the main studio between Riverside Drive and the Los Angeles River, which he believed would be the perfect park for some safe rides where people could visit with Mickey Mouse and other characters. In 1939, Walt met with Bob and Bill Jones from the Animation Studios Character Model Department and told them about a confidential project he wanted them to work on. 
Walt described an amusement park for the southeast corner of his new studio designed for the entire family that would be beautiful and well-maintained like his new studio. So Bob and Bill Jones spent six weeks visiting every amusement park they could find, including the 1939 World's Fair on San Francisco's Treasure Island, and came up with a rough design for the park. Upon entering the park, visitors would find themselves in the town square of a Bavarian village, with architecture similar to the village in Pinocchio. From this town square, streets would lead visitors to the various attractions, including a merry-go-round that was specifically requested by Walt. A train station would be at the front entrance of the park where visitors could board a train to ride around the perimeter of the park, and Walt would control views by placing a high fence, shrubs, and foliage around the border of the park. So we can already start to see familiar elements materializing in Walt's mind. So one of the rides suggested by the Jones brothers was a dark ride through the Seven Dwarfs Mine, which would include figures animated by a series of cams and internal cables synced to a film soundtrack loop. Walt thought the Jones brothers' ideas were promising, but the demands of producing Pinocchio and Fantasia and the advent of World War II resulted in placing Walt's plans for a park on hold. In 1934, Ward Kimball was hired at the studio as an animator, and Ward was also the owner of the Grizzly Flats Railroad in the backyard of his San Gabriel home. The railroad had 900 feet of narrow-gauge track and a restored 1881 Southern Pacific coal-burning Baldwin Mogul live steam locomotive and a smaller wood-burning 1907 Baldwin live steam locomotive. Kimball and his wife, Betty, would frequently host steam-up parties for friends and neighbors to ride the okay. railroad. Ward invited Walt to a steam-up party on October 20th, 1945. Ward appointed Walt chief engineer and showed him how to run the locomotives. This experience touched something deep from his boyhood within Walt, and Walt found something that excited him at the perfect time in his life. Walt's wife Lillian believed it was Walt's fascination with trains that provided a focus for Disneyland. With World War II, the important overseas markets for Disney films were gone, and with that, the income that paid for Walt's unceasing innovation. During the war, the studio primarily produced training films for the military. Walt's idea for an amusement park lay dormant during the early post-war years, although Walt did continue to talk about offering a studio tour and building a train ride around the perimeter of the studio. After the war, Walt Disney Productions had fierce competition in the production of cartoon shorts from MGM and Warner Brothers. Cinderella was in production. The studio was making films like Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart which combined animation and live action because they were faster and less expensive to produce than feature-length animated films. In 1946, Walt had to take a million-dollar loan from RKO to prevent insolvency. Walt revisited his idea for an amusement park as a way to diversify business and perhaps save the studio. The timing for Walt to reconsider his idea could not have come at a better time, 
Imagineer John Hinch said, A big impetus was when the doctors told him that he had to have a hobby, and he started making miniatures and built his live steam train, and that continued until he had his full-size trains at Disneyland. In 1948, Walt went to the studio machine shop looking for assistance with building a miniature H.O. Gage model railroad layout for his nephew's Christmas gift. Roger Brogy helped Walt and watched him create his H.O. miniature landscape with the same enthusiasm he applied to creating his films. Walt decided to build a layout for himself in his office. Walt and Brogy built a layout in the office large enough to fill half of a two-car garage. We didn't see that in Saving Mr. Banks, did we? Playing with his trains was the break from the studio Walt was looking for. When Walt was finished building his layout, he said, Okay, this is a toy electric train. Now what's for real? Soon Walt and Roger were researching live steam and building a real live steam locomotive. For Lillian and her family, live steam would determine where they lived. Lillian and Diane had been looking for property for the new Disney home. They found a nice location near downtown Los Angeles, but Walt did not like that it was so close to the hustle and bustle of Wilshire Boulevard, and it had no room for his train. (laughs) A large piece of property in Holmby Hills was perfect for their new home and for Walt's train. Walt's train was live steam, but was one-eighth scale rather than full size. The model drawings came from a photograph and blueprints from a Southern Pacific Railroad locomotive number 173, built in the late 19th century. Walt Disney, with the assistance of Roger Brogy and others in the studio machine shop, built a perfect working replica of the engine. Walt named it the Lily Bell after his wife. The project became popular with railroad enthusiasts who purchased duplicate sets of the drawings and castings. This income from this paid for the entire cost of engineering and building the project. The Lily Bell provided enough live steam power to chug around the 2,600 feet of track at 30 miles per hour in the Disney's backyard. Walt called his railroad the Carrollwood Pacific after the location of his home on Carrollwood Avenue. Walt's backyard railroad convinced him that a train would be a central part of his idea for a family park. When John Hench was working in the animation department, he would look out the window of his office, which overlooked an area between the Disney studio and the river. Hench talked about one particular day, I'd often work over the weekends, and one Sunday I looked up and saw Walt out there pacing an area with his long three-foot strides. I knew he was measuring space for something. He'd walk a certain direction, then walk another way. So one day Hench asked Walt, What in the hell are you doing across the street, tramping around in those weeds? Walt told Hench about his plans for a park. He wanted to build near the commissary, where the employees' children could visit. His plans at that time included a singing waterfall, and Walt was out there pacing out where to put the waterfall. Walt began to spend time researching other amusement parks. Walt visited Coney Island, Knott's Berry Farm, Travel Town in Griffith Park, the Los Angeles County Fair, and Oakland's Children's Fairyland. Walt also visited every small amusement park and kiddie land in the Los Angeles area. 
Walt became friends with Dave and Bernice Bradley, who ran the three-quarter acre Beverly Park at the corner of Beverly and La Cienega Boulevards. Dave Bradley built amusement park rides and had very particular notions about what amusement parks should be, and Walt would talk with Dave for hours. Walt would visit Beverly Park almost every day, sit on a bench, and watch the children play and ask them questions about their park experiences. Walt wanted to know how the rides worked, what people ate, how people lined up in the queues, and how long it would take before they became impatient. (laughs) Walt also measured the length of the queues. Walt eventually hired Dave Bradley to research European amusement parks and photograph the rides. In 1948, Walt also visited the facility of Wendell Bud Hurlbut, another supplier of amusement park equipment, and the creator of the Calico Mine Train and Timber Mountain Log Ride at Knott's Berry Farm. Walt would talk with Hurlbut for hours and invited him out to take a look at the property next to the studio. Hazel George, the Disney studio nurse and Walt's confidant, noticed that Walt seemed anxious and aimless. Walt mentioned to George that Walt Kimball always seemed relaxed and believed his railroading hobby was the reason. Hazel George suggested to Walt that he should take a break and visit the 1948 Chicago Railroad Fair. Walt Kimball tells this story. Walt calls me out of bed early on a Sunday morning and he says, Hey Kimball, this is Walt. And I always said, Walt who? (laughs) Now I knew a lot of other guys named Walt. Kimball, this is Walt. There's a swell train show they're opening in Chicago down by the lake. It's supposed to be the biggest event in railroad history and I want to go. Kimball said, wow, I want to see that. More than 100,000 rail fans attended the Chicago Railroad Fair. The fairgrounds were divided up into themed villages representing different destinations hosted by different railway lines. There was a replica of New Orleans' French Quarter, a dude ranch, a national park, and an American Indian Pueblo. Costumed attendants and food appropriate to the village theme added to the atmosphere. After exploring the fair, Walton Ward left Chicago and visited the Henry Ford Museum near Dearborn, Michigan. Next to the museum is Greenfield Village, which features historical buildings that have been moved to the location, restored, and put on display. Historical structures include Orville and Wilbur Wright's Bicycle Shop, the original Ford Assembly Shop, Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory, a 1913 Denzel Merry-Go-Round, and a Stern Wheeler Riverboat. A steam train transports guests around the village. Days after returning from this trip, in a memo dated August 31, 1948, to production designer Dick Kelsey, Walt outlined his ideas for Mickey Mouse Park. Guests would enter a main village with an old-fashioned town square that will be a place for people to sit and rest. Mothers and grandmothers can watch over small children at play. Surrounding the square would be a railroad station, fire station, drugstore, and other shops. There would also be a little jail where kids could look in. We might even have some characters in it, just like Knott's Berry Farm. The village would have an opera house and a movie theater. Visitors would ride on historic vehicles, such as a horse trolley, horse-drawn buckboards, and a steam train. 
There would be other themed areas, such as a western village and a carnival section. Now, Walt had long admired Harper Goff's pictures of American scenes, published in Esquire and Coronet magazines. Walt met Goff in a London model train shop in 1951 and invited him to dinner, where he asked Goff to come and work for him on a secret project that is sort of a kiddie land that will be called Walt Disney's America. Goff was soon at the Disney studio assigned to a private room off-limits to other employees with orders to keep the door closed. Not far from Goff's secret office, Walt had one of his key animation storymen, Ken Anderson, working on another secret project, a traveling exhibit called Disneylandia. Anderson painted 24 scenes of American folklore and history, each to be built in miniature by Walt Disney. Walt's idea was to create a series of elaborate stage sets with miniature animated characters. Earlier, Walt had returned from New Orleans with a mechanically animated bird in a cage. With this technique, Walt believed he could animate his tableau for Disneylandia. He intended to bring Disneylandia to school children across the country. The first scene Walt tried to animate was a tap-dancing man in an old-fashioned theater. He hired actor and dancer Buddy Epson to come in and dance in front of a grid whilst being photographed. Analyzing the film frame by frame, Roger Brogy and Wethel Rogers tried to reproduce Epson's movements in a one-eighth scale mechanical dancing figure about nine inches high. After several weeks of effort, an exasperated Brogy told Walt, If we could just go to some research and development on a full-sized figure, there are devices being developed in aircraft controls that may give us the upper hand. This was the beginning of what would become audio animatronics. Even if it had been successful, a cost analysis revealed that 24 scenes, with people constantly putting quarters in every coin slot to animate the figures, would not take in enough money to pay for the maintenance. So Walt finally concluded he was going to have to build Dislandia full size and combine it with his Kittyland Park at a permanent location. The project name would be shortened from Dislandia to Disneyland. Harper Goff was assigned to lay out a basic plan for the new full-size Disneyland park on 16 undeveloped acres across the street from the studio. There would be sinking waterfalls and fountains, pony rides, statues of Disney characters, picnic areas, a roller coaster ride going over a simulated broken bridge, a museum display for Walt's beloved American scenes in miniature, and a live stream train running along the river's edge into nearby Griffith Park. It would be clean and safe without the carny atmosphere of most amusement parks. These expanded plans made Roy Disney's original 1952 budget of $10,000 for project development look underwhelming. Goff and Disney took their preliminary plans and sketches to the Burbank City Council to obtain city support. Despite Walt's enthusiastic description of a family park, a councilman exclaimed, We don't want the carny atmosphere in Burbank. We don't want people falling in the river or merry-go-round squawking all day long. Walt walked out. Eventually, much of this land would become part of the Ventura Freeway. Huh. In the deepest secrecy, 
The Disney staff began to look at other locations for Disneyland, including Descanso Gardens, the Police Pistol Range in Chatsworth, and a location in Calabasas. I'm sure glad in they July. Didn't do, I'm sure glad they didn't do Descanso. Descanso is a beautiful place to visit. Yeah, I looked it up on the internet when I was doing my research, and I just couldn't imagine them giving up such beautiful gardens. Well, you know, yeah, we it's still a, a destination, there. and. Um, <laughs> We have a membership there, and we just love it. It's a beautiful place for a walk. It's got a lot of history on its own. So, Where is it located? It's between Glendale and Pasadena um, in La La Cunada? La Cunada. I was going to say La Cunada and La Crescenta kind of merge into each other. It's off of Foothill Boulevard, um, which is to the north of the um, 101 freeway. Or one, blah, 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 blah. To the north of the 134 freeway. and it, Or you can get to it from the 210 north as well. And it's... <laughs> It's a beautiful walk. It's got a lot of history, especially related to World War II. Cause it's in the foothills it. of this. Hmm? Go ahead, Nancy. Oh, go no, ahead. no, go ahead. No, finish what you were saying. No, I was going to say it's, um, it's got a lot of history for, um, for World War II. In fact, its entire camellia forest came from um, a Japanese garden... Um, nurserymen who uh, who had to uh, be interred into one of the camps, and so he sold everything to the Descansos. But they have a they're right in a canyon in the hills there, and it's, it's in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. Yeah, north of San Gabriel. <clears throat> and since we're talking about other areas to be glad. Since we live right down the street from the studios, um, I can pretty much tell you we've actually looked at the property um, that lies in with the freeway. And, um, and yeah, it's just amazing how that would have very awkwardly fit in with today's plan, but it would have actually been right next to Griffith Park. Hmm. That must be why he was looking at it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, well, literally sounds... right next to the studios. It would be sandwiched in between the LA Equestrian Center and the studio. That's definitely. I like touring gardens. I think Descansa Gardens is a place. I well, that will have to be my day six. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, <laughs> well, we'll have to do that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be good. So. So Walt and the staff decided this haphazard way of looking for locations wasn't getting them anywhere. So in July 1955, the Stanford Research Institute was called in. Its lead scout, Harrison Buzz Price, immediately called for a more scientific method for selecting a location. And at the same time, Walt began searching for people who could engineer and construct Disneyland. Harper Goff was now the art director for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So Walt hired the architectural firm of Piera and Luckman to work on the park's concepts and master planning. Walt then hired art director Richard Irvine to act as a liaison between the Disney people and the architects. Irvine had heard Walt speak about a studio tour for many years and had a good grasp of what Walt had in mind. 
After a few preliminary meetings, Irvine concluded that the people who could best design Disneyland were on Disney's own staff. Now, Walt, Disney's produ- Walt Disney Productions was now a publicly owned company and did not fully support Walt's idea for a new amusement park. In 1953, Walt formed and personally funded a new corporation, Walt Disney Incorporated. The name was later changed to Wed Enterprises to avoid possible objections by shareholders of Walt Disney Productions to the use of the Disney name. It became the engineering and designing arm for Disneyland. From the studio, Walt hired people who could communicate visually and had a spirit of innovation. Ken Anderson rejoined the project after completing his work on Sleeping Beauty. Harper Goff and John Hench returned after finishing up on 20,000 Leagues. Disney artists Claude Coates, Herb Ryman, and Mark Davis also made significant contributions to designing Disneyland. As the Disney designers began to refine Disneyland's concepts, they realized they needed to survey they needed to survey what had been done in other park-like projects. Walt had traveled extensively in Europe and was impressed with Copenhagen's Tivoli Gardens. He also remembered Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan, and sent Harper Goff and his wife to Dearborn to study Greenfield Village. Others on the WED staff went to the Los Angeles County Fair in Pomona and Knott's Berry Farm in Buena Park to measure the walkways, view the traffic flow, and observe how people navigated through the amusement parks. The Disney staff learned what not to do, rather than what to do. They found most of the parks they visited were casually designed, poorly maintained, featured the same rides, and had surly attendants. (laughs) Wow. The Disney staff concluded that a single entrance was an absolute necessity. The park elements needed to be laid out in a coherent sequence, like a motion picture, and all the attractions would have to be unique to Disney. There would be wide walkways, plenty of landscaping, and shaded benches to provide rest. There would be good food and plenty of entertainment, including parades, marching bands, and appearances by Disney characters. A full-time staff of custodians would keep the park grounds spotless. This would be like no park ever built. Walt asked several owners of amusement parks to the studio to discuss WED's developing plans for Disneyland. George Whitney, owner of San Francisco's Playland at the Beach, where I spent many days of my boyhood, advised against an elevated train station at the park's entrance because he was convinced visitors would not climb the stairs to the train. However, Walt believed in the marquee value of major visual elements and insisted the train had to be elevated to be easily seen and it would be too alluring for guests to pass up. Walt did receive one piece of constructive advice from the amusement park owners, the need for efficient, high-capacity operations. A few seconds lost in loading each ride vehicle meant a significant attendance loss by the end of the day. The plans Disney developed led to revolutionary operational standards for handling large numbers of guests quickly, efficiently, and courteously. The Stanford Research Institute staff also visited several amusement parks in the United States and overseas. 
At the National Association of Parks, Pools, and Beaches in Chicago, Buzz Price met with seven of the nation's owners of leading amusement parks and explained Walt's ideas for a clean, family-friendly park. The reaction was unanimous. It can't work. Under capacity in its rides, too much cost in non-revenue-producing activities such as janitorial services. Income would not support the cost. It couldn't operate year-round. It would be the world capital of mechanical breakdown. Despite all the conflicting data, the Stanford Research Institute put together a feasibility finding that recommended $11 million of initial investment. The next challenge for Walt was where would he get the money? Walt Disney Productions was reluctant to invest more money in Walt's Disneyland because the company was still recovering from the financial losses of World War II, the animated features were becoming more expensive to produce, and the studio had committed substantial capital to producing live-action films. Walt, ever the innovator, came up with a unique plan. He asked studio nurse Hazel George if she would invest in Disneyland. Hazel not only agreed, she convinced other employees to invest. Together they formed the Disneyland Boosters and Backers. Walt thought if Roy saw that the rank-and-file employees believed in Disneyland, Roy would actively support the project. The plan worked. Roy's commitment to Disneyland was vital to its success. It became unnecessary for the Disneyland boosters and backers to invest in the park. Walt showed his commitment to the project by personally financing WED Enterprises, selling his Palm Springs home, and cashing in his personal insurance policy to keep the development of Disneyland moving forward. But this was not sufficient to complete the project. Walt found the answer in a new entertainment medium, television. In the early 1950s, most Hollywood studios dismissed television as a passing fad or regarded it as an enemy. Walt Disney recognized its potential in selling his films and to communicating his Disneyland idea to the American people and embraced it. The success of Disney films made them a marketable commodity for television. The two major networks, two at the time, um, wanted Disney, but lost interest when Walt began talking about Disneyland. Walt insisted there would be no television series without an agreement from the network to help finance Disneyland. In 1951, Walt met with, executive, with executives from ABC, which was working hard to become the third network. This was several years before Walt announced the Disneyland project. The purpose of the meeting was to talk about a Disney television series, and very quickly Walt turned the conversation into a presentation on his idea for Disneyland. Don Tatum, an ABC executive who later joined the Disney organization and rose to become chairman of the board, said, It was the first I'd heard about it. Walt just carried on and on about it and built a word picture. He didn't have any visual material to refer to, but even so, he drew such a dramatic, vivid word description that I left with a great deal of enthusiasm. But our people seemed not to understand what he was talking about. Two years later, in September 1953, Disneyland's design was taking shape, so Walt decided it was time to approach the television networks again for financial backing for Disneyland. 
Remembering his inability to communicate the concept to the networks, Walt asked Roy to make the presentation. Walt decided Roy would need visual materials and wanted a large, impressive rendering showing an aerial view of his planned park. Herb Ryman was a talented artist who worked with Walt in the 1940s, then went to 20th Century Fox to work as an illustrator sketch artist and worked summers with the Ringling Brothers Circus. One Saturday morning, September 23, 1953, Herb received a phone call from Dick Irvine who said, We're over here at the Disney studio. Walt wants to talk to you. Walt got on the phone and told him to get to the studio as fast as he could. When he arrived, Walt outlined his concept for Disneyland and said, My brother Roy is going to New York Monday morning. He's got to get the idea of this place across to the financiers. Walt described the large rendering of Disneyland needed to accompany Roy's sales pitch. Ryman thought this was impossible because there simply wasn't enough time. But Walt was unrelenting. Walt promised, I'll stick right with you through the whole time. Where have you got the designs? asked Ryman. You're going to do them, responded Walt. Ryman testily replied, Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to be called in on Saturday morning to do something this complex by Monday. It'll embarrass both you and me. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Ryman later remembered that Walt was persuasive and pitiful, like a little boy who wants something. But I didn't have anything to lose. I knew I couldn't do a good job. But if he wanted to stay up all Saturday night and all Sunday night, I figured I could do it too. Hmm. So I think and Walt said went out and got tuna fish sandwiches and coffee, and that's what they ate all weekend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> This weekend, Walt Disney and Herb Ryman spent together was the most likely, the most intense and critical in the history of Disneyland's development. Walt was fully prepared to art direct Herb on his concept for Disneyland. This is a magic place, Walt said. The important thing is the castle. Make it tall enough to be seen from all around the park. It's got to keep people oriented. And I want a hub at the end of Main Street, where all the other lands will radiate from, like the spokes in a wheel. I've been studying the way people go to museums and other entertainment places. Everybody's got tired feet. I don't want that to happen in this place. I want a place for people to sit down and where old folks can say, you kids run on. I'll meet you there in half a, in a half hour. Disneyland is going to be a place where you can't get lost or tired unless you want to. <laughs> Herb drew as Walt spoke. He laid out a roughly oval shape and put Walt's castle near the center. There would be just one entrance to the park with an elevated train station rising above. The entrance would lead to Main Street, USA, a recreation of a typical turn-of-the-century American town. The Main Street would lead to a central hub of Disneyland, where visitors could choose to enter one of the park's four realms. Ahead rose the castle, and across its drawbridge was Fantasyland, the home of Snow White, Peter Pan, and all the Disney characters. Moving left around the hub, Herb drew a log stockade to mark the entrance of Frontierland, home of Davy Crockett and the American Wild West. Further down, he drew a jungle canopy covering the entrance to Adventureland, home of True Life Adventures. On the opposite side of the hub, Herb drew the futuristic world of tomorrow, later to be called 
Tomorrowland. A few days later, Dick Irvine and Roy Disney landed in New York with the Disneyland sketch by Herb Ryman. Together, they had a luncheon meeting with ABC's Leonard Goldenson. After studying the Disneyland sketch, Goldenson said, We'll tell Walt that he can have what he wants. We're all ready to go with him. In return for a $500,000 investment and a series of guaranteed loans, ABC would receive one-third ownership of Disneyland Park and a weekly television series from Walt. Walt would host each show himself, introducing live and animated features from each of the four lands of Disneyland. There would be cartoons from Fantasyland, true life adventure films from Adventureland, Frontierland's Davy Crockett would soon be a national phenomenon, and noted rocket pioneer Werner von Braun would launch viewers into outer space from Tomorrowland. Every few weeks, Walt planned to present progress updates on Project Disneyland, which would show the construction of the park and provide viewers with sneak peeks of the attractions. <laughs> Walt's dream of building a family-friendly park was finally becoming a reality. Walt Disney has been quoted as saying, The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. In my next segment of 60 Years of Disneyland, I'll examine how Walt, after securing the financial backing for Disneyland, began doing and began the construction of Disneyland. Very cool. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. That's so much. I, what a true visionary Walt Disney was. And the determinations to get to bring his vision to life. It's amazing. And what I like too is is that he was so confident in yeah. he he was so confident. I mean, he believed that this park was going to work and he didn't stop at anything despite people who were supposedly experts in the field of of amusement parks telling him none of this was going to work. Yeah. He 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 had that confident and that confidence in that, you know, that that hope and that positiveness that's shown in everything he did, that he went forward and, um, you know, really made made history in entertainment. Well, you know, one of, the he was, I, one of the things I loved about it, the whole history and everything, is, you know, he worked on the, the theory of, you know, it will come. The money, you know, the lack of money. The money will come. We'll find it from somewhere. You know, he never compromised that Mm -hmm. you know and you know we always tease and say nowadays you know if you build it they will come you know quoting field of dreams (laughs) right but it's it's so true i mean it it was just so in inventive that he could do this no matter what you know he never stopped and he also believed no matter how much you put into the park, you will get your money back because yes. people will recognize the quality yeah. and appreciate it. And I think in the ensuing years, we've seen eras where that philosophy hasn't been there. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, it's it's true when we've seen things like Cars Land where they put in the money, look at the benefits that they've reaped yeah. from it. Right. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.